today's guests on Behind the Screen are two respected members of the sound community. Re-recording mixer Anna Belmer, who holds the distinction of being the first woman nominated for an Academy Award in sound mixing. She's a 10-time Oscar nominee and one of very few women at the top of her field. Also joining us is Mark Patterson, who won an Oscar and BAFTA for Les Mis and whose recent credits include Green Book. Today, they'll be talking with us about the state of the sound industry and their latest film, Paramount's Bumblebee. I'm Carolyn Giardina. Welcome to Behind the Screen. Before we begin our conversation with Anna and Mark, let's look at a number of the societies and guilds that announced their award nominations this week and what they might mean for the Oscar race. Last Monday, the American Society of Cinematographers announced their nominations. In the feature category, the nominees are Alfonso Cuaron for Roma, Maddie Libatique for A Star is Born, Robbie Ryan for The Favorite, Lena Sangren for First Man, and Lukasz Zal for Cold War. In six of the past 10 years, the winner of this category went on to win the Oscar in cinematography. The Art Directors Guild divides their live-action feature categories into three, period, fantasy, and contemporary. In the category for a period film, the Guild nominated The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, Bohemian Rhapsody, The Favorite, First Man, and Roma. The nominees in the fantasy category are Black Panther, Fantastic Beasts, The House with a Clock in Its Walls, Mary Poppins Returns, and Ready Player One. And the contenders for the award for a contemporary film are A Quiet Place, A Star is Born, Crazy Rich Asians, Mission Impossible Fallout, and Welcome to Marvin. Over the past five years, the winner of the art director's period film category went on to win the Oscar in production design three times. Once, the Oscar went to the fantasy category winner and once to the contemporary film winner. Meanwhile, Ace nominated the editors of Black Klansman, Bohemian Rhapsody, First Man, Roma, and A Star is Born in its Best Edited Dramatic Feature category. And for Best Edited Comedy, Ace nominated the editors of Crazy Rich Asians, Deadpool 2, The Favorite, Green Book, and Vice. In 11 of the last 15 years, the winner of the Best Edited Dramatic Feature category went on to win the Oscar for Film Editing. Also announced this week were the nominations for the Cinema Audio Society. In its feature category, CAS nominated A Quiet Place, A Star is Born, Bohemian Rhapsody, Black Panther, and First Man. In six of the past 10 years, the winner of this feature category went on to claim the Oscar in sound mixing. And the Makeup Artists and Hairstylists Guild spread the wealth with the nominations for their annual awards. But we should note that films that received two nominations apiece included Black Panther, Bohemian Rhapsody, Mary Queen of Scots, Stan and Ollie, and Vice. And these films are also among the movies shortlisted for the Makeup and Hairstyling Oscar. Now let's talk to our guests. It's been more than a decade since Michael Bay's first Transformers film opened in theaters. Now the saga enters a new territory with a new director, Travis Knight. The story follows the bot Bumblebee, who befriends an 18-year-old named Charlie, played by Haley Steinfeld. Anna and Mark, welcome and thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. So to start for the uninitiated, would you explain the role of a re-recording mixer? Ah, the role of a re-recording mixer is to take the elements that have been edited by the sound editors, music, effects, 
and dialogue and to blend them together so that there's clarity in the dialogue. You hear all of the sound effects when you need to in the areas where you need to have the visceral effect and uh, the emotion of the music is always allowed to come through. The balance is of the utmost importance and that's what really makes a good mix. Now, since there have been four previous Transformers films, to what extent did you aim to keep the sound of the bots consistent to the previous films? And to what extent did you want to try something new? From my perspective, with the voices of the robots, I mean, they, their voices are their voice. And the job is to recreate that and make sure they sound like themselves. The challenge, I guess, was when you've got an affected voice and you're adding so much treatment to a voice and there's so much else going on around them, it's, it's how do you get the clarity? So... I mean, I can't even tell you the amount of times myself and Joel, the dialogue editor, jumped back into a room to listen to original things and see how we were sounding just to try and get that authenticity in the voices. Now, this film is set in 1987, and you have period electronics like audio cassettes, TVs, and then you also have plenty of 80s music. How did that influence your approach to the mix? For areas where there's source music, of course, we apply an effect to make it sound like a tape recorder. But at the same time, we want people to enjoy the music. For me, being an 80s child, I just want to play the music, you know, so I did. more Actually, probably more so than I normally would. Just let the music play as kind of full and let people enjoy it. Because I think it's, we want to like spark that emotion in people, you know. We want them to remember that music and remember that time. Yeah, to get a little smile on their face when they hear it. Yeah. I certainly did. I mean, Mark says he's an 80s child. I'm an 80s child. <laughs> <laughs> Stop the car, please. Oh, no, no, no. no. Hey, what are you doing? Oh. What are you doing? I mean, we'd have people dancing at the back of the room, wouldn't we? We'd yeah. play, we'd play sections <laughs> of the of the mix with yeah. some of the '80s songs playing, and they'd turn around, and there's just people that would usually be sitting on their laptops waiting to respond, you know, dancing around, singing away. Especially the so, Steve Winwood song. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Back in the high life, yeah. <laughs> it was a, it was a lot of fun, really. When were all of these songs selected? You know, we had those songs in from the very first temp. I'm pretty sure it was all Travis. I'm sure a lot of them were scripted, actually. Yeah, that, is, yeah. that too. Which were your favorites? Well, the Stevie Winwood song, that's the one that really stands out. For me, Unchained Melody, and oh, yeah. that was, oh, a, yeah. that was a, one of those delicate moments as a music mixer come along now and then and you sort of embrace them the way that it was blended with score that was an opportunity for me to to play around and trying to make something really pretty so I would say that was one of my favorite areas yeah and in that area Travis was very conscious of wanting it to be delicate and any of the movements or any of the non-speaking vocalizations that came from Bumblebee had to be very delicate as he was communicating with Charlie. Because as you know, his vocal cords were ripped out, so he wasn't speaking for uh, a lot of the movie. Actually, most of the movie. He, he didn't have a voice that wasn't from a radio. So in the beginning, there was 
nonverbal sounds, servos and squeaks, and just and they had to be mixed with a, a real delicacy, and that was something that Travis was really keen on because he wanted them to be able to communicate, but also it was a very touching scene, especially with that piece of music and then into score. Well, and his servo sounds are his voice in that scene, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. Very delicate. It's very well done the way he manages to respond to her in such a delicate moment just with movements of his body. Mm-hmm. And it's really a scene where the two of them really form their, their very close bond. Look, people can be terrible about things they don't understand. If they find you, they'll probably lock you up in a lab somewhere. It'll be bad. Trust me. The only person you can show yourself around is me. Okay? It's about storytelling. Yeah, that's a very important point. All of the decisions we make until we're into like any, you know, minute kind of engineering-y type things are story yeah. points. They're all emotion-based and... I think that's probably the most important aspect we start with. You know, why are we playing the music over dialogue or why are we playing the effects louder here? It's because of the emotion of the scene that this, the picture and the story of the movie tells us what to do. Mm-hmm. I worked with um, Richard Portman in my career um, and he was a very famous and fine mixer, did things like the, you know, Deer Hunter and big films, uh, Harold and Maude, Godfather. And he always used to say to me, just watch the screen. It tells you what it needs. Just watch the screen. It's all about the story. Don't, don't play something that's going to detract or confuse the audience. Just watch the movie and it will tell you everything it needs. And I still go by that. You have those quieter moments, but then you also have the big action sequences. What was the most challenging aspect overall, though, to making this film? You know what? It's the fight sequences because you've got to make them exciting and big, but you don't want to push people away by having them too loud or too painful. Don't you think you could hide? We did the mix at the Technicolor facility at Paramount on stage two. We were helped with the fact that we got to mix in Atmos, which is an immersive system that has speakers spread all around the room, some point source, some things are in arrays, which makes it easier for us to disperse the sound. You know, you can have action on the screen and then the music can be off the screen kind of, you know, spreading the sound out a little more, making it a little less aggressive and intense. But then again, you want it to be aggressive and intense, but not painful. So that was, that was a big challenge. Doing it Atmos was a lot of fun. There's some really great jet buys and overhead situations. And then Mark really used the objects for for voices and in ways that you would not always expect, so which was really well orchestrated, I thought. Yeah, I think Atmos is a great format. Sometimes you're sort of looking for things to do with it. But for me on this one, it was a great tool because trying to make the robots big without volume, obviously they have their processes, they have their creative base and, and low end, which helps to make them big. But to be able to 
put them high into the ceiling and to spread them was just a really useful tool you know even just to make them seem like they're taller than humans because you can raise the voice to physically a higher point you know in the theater than you can just from the center speaker this was one of the one of the times that for me it, it was actually just important to have atmos so what was it like to work with travis travis was great he knew exactly what he wanted which is really wonderful for us because it's not a lot of uh, indecision. And he also was very willing to let us experiment and try things and show him things. Yeah, I mean, I echo that. When you have a director that knows exactly what they want, it's the ideal scenario, you know, because they can express what they want from the scene, and then you can go about creating that. And, and there might be a number of ways of doing it, but when you have that specific direction... It just gives you that sense of what you're working towards, you know, and it means that we can build something from the start. We know he wants it and then we can just keep finessing it as opposed to playing in something and then having to rebuild it because it's not quite right. So ultimately the mix just gets better because, you know, you're able to expand on ideas from the beginning rather than re reinvent the wheel a few times to get there. Mark, favorite scene and why? Favorite scene? Probably, as I mentioned earlier, the Unchained Melody scene. And I think because ultimately this is a friendship movie, it's still a big, you know, Transformers movie, but that scene is where that kind of, you really, as a viewer, sense that closeness that they end up having, which kind of is the way the rest of the movie goes. That's what I take away from this movie is that, the friendship that they have and the journey they go on. It is. It's a very different feel than yeah. the others. Yeah. Anna, what about you? Favorite scene? I liked when Bumblebee lands on Earth and the chase to where he's injured and loses his memory. I, I like that scene. I like it because I had so much fun mixing it. And I think... In my opinion, it is really well balanced. It sounds good. And it was just a lot of fun. We got to use a lot of Atmos. There was plenty of uh, action, but also there was plenty of music. And it was all working together in a fashion that, that I really like. So, What were some of the individual elements and the sound effects for that scene? For that scene? Well, you had all the ordinary kind of things like cars and guns and explosions but um, you also had all the robot, all of their mechanisms and movement. And, and in the end of that scene, when, during their big fight, just, you know, just working hard to get enough clarity where you hear, you know, you can hear every servo. Because at that time, he had his voice still. So you could also hear him speaking, and you could also hear the music playing to get the emotion so, you know, that, that's pretty much my favorite kind of scenario where, where, you know, we work hard to make it clear and distinct and clean. Do you think we'll see more from Bumblebee? I hope so. The film's doing pretty well. He's such a likable character. I mean, in the beginning of the movie, he was almost like, he was like a lost puppy. He was a little goofy and he didn't really know who he was. Just, just similar to... Um, Charlie, she'd, she'd lost herself as well. So the two of them find, because of their emotional connection, they both realize who they are and what their purpose is. 
Now, Annie, you're also still one of very few women at the top of your field. How did you break into the industry? Carolyn, you know this story. (laughs) But our listeners don't. (laughs) Oh, right. Good point. Okay, I was in college in uh, the 80s, being a real child of the 80s. Changing majors every semester, and I was uh, dating a young man who was working in a sound facility as an engineer. So I would spend a fair amount of time there visiting with him. And after a while, I'd get bored, so I started helping in the machine room. I'd help thread the uh, dummy loaders. I was there one afternoon and on a weekend, and one of the mixers walked out, and he said, Anna, you spend so much time here, you should get yourself a union card. And I thought to myself, well, that's a good idea. I think I'll do that. And he said, he said to me, I hear they hire women over at Glen Glen. Because, <laughs> of course, at the time, there were none. But over at Glen Glen, there were two. And they were both in the projection department. So I proceeded to go over there, knock on a woman's door, the woman in charge of hiring and scheduling, and say to her, I'm interested in sound. Can you help me? as only a naive 20-year-old can do. Her name was Jan Olson, and she said, yes, I'll help you. So she sent me out to sit on stages and kind of learn about what's going on, and then four months later, I got my first call as a loader. I'm dating myself on Laverne and Shirley and Happy Days on the Paramount lot, not 100 yards from where I work now. Then I slowly moved my way up as a Recordist is what they were called then. Now they're mixed techs. Then I got an opportunity to learn to mix. And the rest is history. And the young engineer is my husband of the last 34 years. So I just thought I'd mention that. <laughs> and are you seeing more women today in the industry? I am seeing more women. And, and it's encouraging. I am seeing a lot more women. I'm seeing, you know, you just look at the films this year, and there are lots of women in in the positions of supervising sound editor and re-recording mixer, and also, you know, ADR supervisor. There have always been women in editorial, you know, but now more and more women are supervising sound editors, and more and more women are re-recording mixers. And it's, it's, really, it's really gratifying. I'm, I'm very pleased by that. Mark, how did you get started? Uh, Well, probably a slightly less inspirational story than Anna, but, uh, (laughs) you know, college, university, studying sound, and then was lucky enough to, uh, after writing about 150 letters to post houses around London, was lucky enough to get one reply and ended up as a runner at that company, which lasted for maybe a couple of months before I moved in to a studio position. I think right around that time, Pro Tools was just coming in. And it was just great timing for me throughout my career. You know, I've had opportunities that just seemed like good timing. Of course, you have to take them. But the the whole Pro Tools thing back then was a fast track for me onto the stages. And I think I got my first mix credit around 22. And, and then, as Anna said, the rest is history. You just keep going from there and, you know, climbing the ladder. Different movies lead to different opportunities. And, and here we are today. And can I just say as well, it's, you know, to have the opportunity to work with Anna, who has been such a inspiration for anyone trying to get into the industry, especially women, has been just great to be involved with and and to be on on that kind of train with her and to be able to support that cause also has been great. And, you know, 
even to go out and seek women directors and anyone involved and to try and help them is something that we try to do. I think that's fair to say. Absolutely. We and, do try to do that. Yeah. And I've been very fortunate in my career. I've always worked with such amazing and generous men, and I've never, ever had an issue. I've, I've had a few issues in my career with discrimination, but never from other mixers, ever. And, and that... That is very important. They've always been generous and great to work with. And, and when I early on, so helpful and willing to uh, give advice and willing to teach, you know. And now I, I just get to work with all kinds of great people. I get to work with Mark Patterson. I get to work with Terry Porter. You know, I'm, I'm a very lucky person. And the both of you have actually worked with some fantastic directors as well. Yes. Paul Feig, as a director for both of us, is one of our favorite directors. Again, I've worked with him on Ghostbusters, but also earlier in the year, Anna and I did a simple favor with Paul. And just a gentleman to work with. But also, as we mentioned with Travis, another one of those guys who knows exactly what he wants from his movie, you know, and just tells you what you want, you go ahead and do it. A pleasure. But in his recent movie, his favorite cocktail recipes are in there. And Anna just reminded me of a story with, uh, with a martini, which would you like to go ahead? Sure. Uh, yeah, we were working with Paul Feig, and um, the two main characters in the film, uh, Simple Favor, drank a lot of gin martinis. Well, Paul happens to like gin martinis, so... One day after work, I think it was probably Friday, we were getting close to seven. Paul decides that he, you know, we said it, we teed him up, honestly. We we're like, oh, we should have martinis. He's like, great, I'll make them. <laughs> so, I mean, that's pretty special to have a, a director like that make you a martini. And so he did. And so that became kind of our our little tradition on the, you know, every Friday while we were doing that film, at the end of the day, we'd have a little martini. You know, so we had... Made we did, by the director. Made by the director. <laughs> and uh, he made a good one. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you.